This podcast is presented by Solving Kids Cancer, dedicated to improving survival through novel clinical studies. To learn more about funding opportunities, visit our website at solvingkidscancer.org and click Apply for Grant. This week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast about new advances for childhood cancer. Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode number 60. That's 60, recorded on November 4, 2016. I'm your host, Tim Kripe, at Nationwide Children's Hospital, affiliated with The Ohio State University here in Columbus, Ohio, along with two co-hosts, Dr. Neil Shaw. Neil welcome. Happy to be here. And Dr. Ryan Roberts. It's a delight. Thank you. Thanks for being here. Today, we have a special guest with us, Dr. Josh Mendel. Welcome, Josh. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you here. Josh is from the UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas, coming up here for our nice warm weather. (laughs) Josh was in town today uh, visiting with us and giving us a seminar on on some of his uh, science, and we wanted to talk to him about his science, which has a lot of applications to biology in general, not just cancer, but um, we'll, we'll get into that in a bit. Josh, just let me ask you a few questions. We always like our audience to figure out how you got to where you are and, you know, what, what makes you tick. So if you could take us back to, uh, you, we heard during the introduction of your talk that you were working in a lab at age 14, so you, you <laughs> must have had the bug early. Well, um, I was fortunate to have uh, be influenced by other physician scientists who really exposed me to medicine and science at a young age. Obviously, it's never probably not possible to have an opportunity to do any meaningful research or have a laboratory experience at age 14 unless you have someone who is willing, that you know, who's willing to sort of take you under their wing and uh, expose you to that. So in my case, you know, my father is a physician scientist at Ohio State um, and here at Nationwide Children's Hospital. And so when I was uh, 14, that was actually a... um, a science fair experiment <laughs> that uh, he had a graduate student who uh, was extremely generous with his time that I had a I was really interested in it and I and I had the interest but I really obviously didn't have any background or knowledge of molecular biology and so I had this uh, graduate student who sort of took me under his wing and really showed me how to do experiments in the lab and obviously it was pretty basic stuff but uh, it exposed me to how the laboratory environment works and how real experiments are done in research and uh, really caught the bug at that age. And Did you so, win the science fair? I got, I, I think it wasn't, <laughs> I, I, I did receive an award in the science fair. I don't know if there was like a first place, second place right, type right. of thing. But, so uh, I keep hearing about the science fair. What was your project? <laughs> that project was, we were looking at, um, it was very simple concept. It was really nothing uh, difficult, but I was trying to understand how environmental conditions mutate DNA. Sounds so simple. I was, <laughs> we, were, we were basically taking like DNA Still plasmids with I marker genes and uh, <laughs> exposing them to like, heat and different pHs and looking at the mutation rates. Cool. It, it wasn't really sort of groundbreaking, but to a 14-year-old, it was very eye-opening, I'll say. And, I mean, for me, I think what I took away from it most was just the process. Yeah. You know, how, what, how, what it's like to work in a lab when they're, you know, when you're in school, even through college, you know, laboratory, that non-laboratory research, but laboratory classes, it's very structured. 
you go in and they say, you know, this is the procedure you're going to follow and this is the experiment you're going to do. And I think what excited me even then was just how um, open-ended research really is and how you have to be creative to figure out the best way to test a problem and also come up with an important question that's relevant to human biology and human disease that's going to that's gonna be important to answer. A huge part of science, though, is failure, right? So uh, it sounds like you had some success at the beginning, which you caught the bug. When did you start experiencing failure? When did you realize that that is an integral part of, you know, making everything, well, becoming successful? Well, I would say that... Um, you know, after throughout high school, I was fortunate to have an opportunity to work in labs during the summer. Uh, through there was actually a ni National Science Foundation program that Ohio State runs for high school students. At least they did in the '90s. I'm not sure if they still do, but when you're when you're a, a young student doing a summer project, it's still about exposure to techniques and learning the environment. So I would say that it really got for me when I really took on my own project for the first time in then it really experienced repetitive failure was as an undergraduate doing research. I went to Cornell University and worked in a laboratory for three years and, you know, during the school year and also over the summers and really got deep into a project and um, certainly encountered more failure than success at that stage of my career for sure. It was successful in the sense that you know, I matured as a scientific thinker and also positioned myself to get into a good graduate education program. And so that part of it was successful, but I don't think I made any groundbreaking discoveries at that time, unfortunately. Yeah, for me, I liken it to my golf game. Most hits are not successful, yeah. but every now and then I can land it on the green. <laughs> That's what keeps you going. Exactly. Great. Moving forward in time a little bit, so you, you completed your training at Johns Hopkins. You, you were We didn't mention that, right? So you went from yeah. Cornell to... Hopkins Med School, mm -hmm. Hopkins or MD, Med PhD yeah, program. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So, so uh, um, had a, a great training with Harry Dietz, and then and you're in a, an RNA biologist at that point. And since then, you've really expanded into these fields called uh, of uh, microRNAs and long non-coding RNAs. As we've discussed before, our listenership is, is kind of broad. And even for a lot of you know, clinicians and, and people who aren't necessarily RNA biologists, these are kind of vague concepts. Can you Do you have a good metaphor to use when you're, you're talking about these and their relevance to disease? Well, I mean, I, I will say that scientifically, I've, since I've really been you know, mature enough to, to really choose a direction of research, I've always been interested in the interface of RNA biology and, and human disease. Um, and even as a graduate student, so I did my PhD, you mentioned in Harry Dietz's lab, and we were studying a process called nonsense-mediated decay, which is a very technical name, but really what it actually is is a quality control pathway in cells that allows cells to recognize um, messenger RNAs, which are the, you know, the recipe for protein, that have errors. And it's a way of the cell of protecting itself from producing you know, these aberrant proteins from these RNAs. And one of the reasons our lab was studying that at the time um, was that it had been, it's known that when people inherit certain mutations that trigger that pathway, it can dramatically affect how the phenotype manifests in those patients. And it can either protect them from the devastating effect of those mutations or actually make it worse. So we were interested in getting at the mechanism to see, you know, ultimately to see if that could be, there were interventions that could potentially be used as therapies. Um, but what I liked about that project 
it had that very clear human disease connection. At the same time, there was a very interesting fundamental biological problem that it entailed, which was how the cell knows the difference between a, a good RNA and a bad RNA. And it was something not in the textbooks. We had no idea how it worked. None of the factors in human cells that mediate that process were known. And so I was able to tackle a basic biology problem with real disease implications. And so when I finished my training and was thinking about starting my own research program, I was still driven by that concept of having the ability to study a basic biological problem, but also translate it to human disease. And I got very excited about the discovery of these RNAs called microRNAs, which are um, very tiny RNAs in the cell that regulate messenger RNAs. And so before that, we thought that all RNAs that do stuff in cells are, are long, like thousands of nucleotides long. And it, we all of a sudden realized that there are hundreds of these little RNAs in the cell. And there was a, an idea um, that sort of I got interested in, which was that maybe these are involved in cancer because a few of them, only just a few out of the hundreds that had been discovered, had been studied in uh, model organisms like C. elegans, which is a, uh, a worm, as you know. And when you knock out or get rid of these microRNAs in C. elegans, they have certain phenotypes that resembled things that happened in human cancer, like cells proliferated too much or they didn't differentiate properly. And there's a history of exciting discoveries of processes in C. elegans and other model organisms that regulate pathways in those organisms that ultimately are also important to human disease. Probably the most famous is maybe apoptosis, which is programmed cell death, which the key genes involved were discovered in C. elegans, and when you knock them out, cells don't die appropriately, and we know, of course, that happens in human cancer. And I saw an analogy there, and so that's why I thought this would be a really exciting area because... A, we don't know much about the basic biology of all these RNAs. There are hundreds of them. Very few people are working on them. And hey, they could be involved in, in human disease, which I think we all ultimately want to have an impact on in our research. And so what happened was well, I started to work on these RNAs. And very quickly, it became clear through the work of a, a number of labs, including ours, that alterations in these microRNAs is very common in human cancer. And if we manipulated the levels to put them back to normal, it could actually have very strong beneficial effects on tumor cell, tumor biology, cause tumors to shrink or die. And, and so there was a lot of basic biology there. What are the mechanisms at play? And then how can we develop it for therapy? And that was kind of, that having that ability to tackle problems across that whole spectrum was attractive to me. I mean, it's, to me, it's, it's this whole field that's blurred, you know, blossomed in the last... I don't know, 10 or 15 years that we didn't even know existed before that. And right. you know, I think our, our listeners probably have some concept of genomics or genetic mutations that might drive cancers. You know, a mutation in a, in a gene that encodes a protein and it causes that protein to be either short or malformed or have some abnormal function. But RNA regulation and RNA mutations and microRNA really... Is, is fundamentally different in that mm -hmm. you can change the expression of one of these small RNAs and alter thousands, hundreds or thousands of genes in terms of their expression levels, right. whether they're on or off. Or, so it's a whole different paradigm of what, how, you, how, how cancer comes to be. Right. And there are um, other types of non-coding RNAs that are even more mysterious that 
seem to play an important role. Dark in matter. <laughs> um, yeah, there's one particular long um, matter. Yeah. Long matter. <laughs> there's this long non-coding RNA um, called mallet one. I don't know if you've heard of that one, but it's it's this very abundant RNA in cells, and it's been shown by multiple labs that it accelerates metastasis of different types of tumors. And David Spector's lab at Cold Spring Harbor published a paper earlier this year where they showed that uh, they developed a therapeutic, which was an antisense oligonucleotide targeting this RNA. And in a mouse model of breast cancer, when they gave them this inhibitor, it dramatically suppressed metastasis. So, and the mechanism of this RNA, how it does this, is actually completely a mystery. Nobody has really... Hopefully, no one who's listening to this podcast will disagree, but I don't think anyone really knows how it works. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think the good science has... Sometimes the hard part is having the best question to ask, right? right. And then finding cool ways of answering those questions. So what to you makes a really good question? What, what, what about a question makes you want to invest your time and resources? It's a good question, right? Yeah. Well, thank you. I thought about it yeah. for a while. <laughs> so, first of all, I totally agree that that is among the most important things that distinguish, you know, really exceptional scientists is their ability to really identify interesting and important questions. And, and I think a lot, probably different people have different approaches and to, to, to doing to trying to do that. I mean, who knows if any of us are successful, but we, we all think we're working on is interesting, but um, I mean, I guess the ultimate judge is sort of the impact that the answer has and, uh, on you and the field and, and ultimately, you know, patients. One of the things that really attracts me to specific problems in biology is if, if, if there's an observation that either we make in our lab or, or another lab makes and publishes and it cannot be easily explained through the existing models or understanding of biology. I am usually instinctively attracted to those kinds of problems because I think it means that there's some fundamental aspect of that path process that we don't understand. And there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's something there, there's a kernel of unknown there that we could go after. So it's really just... So things that don't fit the textbook. Experiments that don't work, in air right. quotes, right? Yeah, they don't work, but they, there is a result, but the result doesn't make sense, yeah. and it can't be easily explained. I tend to gravitate. I mean, that's probably why I work on non-coding RNAs in general, because as a whole, <laughs> we have like, you know, thousands of RNAs produced by the cell. They don't fit into the, par- the traditional paradigm of mm-hmm. RNA encodes protein. Proteins perform all functions. What has to happen also, though, with your interest in the question is the technology's got to be available. Yes. And some of the things you showed today, which you're doing amazing things with, wasn't didn't even exist you know, a few years ago, or we, we, we weren't aware of it or had them as tools. Right. So you have to match your That's true. question with yeah. your like You wish you had next-gen sequencing during your high school science project, right? right. <laughs> There's probably like a high school student out there right now doing next-gen sequencing. And probably. And he's probably like, yeah, yeah, I'm just doing next-gen sequencing. Right. <laughs> exactly. Um, I just sent it to Chris. But you're right. I mean, but I think that also you've got to be able to, to evolve your science too. Because everything I showed today was probably not, even the non-coding RNA biology stuff we you know, we did work using genome editing, which even before CRISPR, genome editing with tail end is still very painful. Five years 
<laughs> less than five years old, right? Yeah, so, I mean, yeah. we're talking about stuff I never did before. It didn't even exist. Yeah, even yeah. before, um, you know, five years ago. So we were using different technologies and being flexible and adapting that. But it's really exciting because uh, I think these newest technologies have enabled at least my lab to answer questions that at least I've struggled to answer before. How, how much of a sense of a risk did you have? Because when you're going to adopt a whole new technology and maybe abandon an old one to answer a question, you don't know if it's really going to work for what you're hoping it's going to work for, right? Did you feel a sense um, of anxiety about that? Well, I feel like my approach to research has always been a little bit high risk, high reward. I think that I try to mitigate the risk by diversifying the risk across multiple projects where each one individually is likely to fail, but at some reasonable probability it will succeed. And if it does, then it's, it'll keep us going till the next one, basically. Uh, it's an exciting, it's an anxiety-provoking way to do science, but it is exciting. It has worked for me thus far. I mean, one of the things I will say is that I've been able to kind of parlay that approach into certain forms of sources of funding that are less conventional, like, like Howard Hughes Medical Institute. They encourage this type of science, and that's probably why I was successful in getting funding from them. Yeah, congratulations um, on being you know, an HHMI scholar. That's fantastic. Thank you. But I think that they, they really want this kind of, this is the kind of research they want to fund, and so... I think that that has sort of that certainly helped me be able to to take that approach because I have a little they give the support in such a way that it's very flexible, and so you can kind of apply it to any project at any time, as opposed to a more traditional grant. Which I also but the I also have some more traditional grants that are dedicated to a very specific project that are you know less high risk, and so I think that it's good to try to balance those things because first of all you know I think that. There are important problems in biology and medicine that are not necessarily high risk, but it's just really important to know the answer. And so we need to do that kind of work. Uh, and then there's other kinds of projects and experiments and ideas that, you know, are sort of harebrained ideas, but when they're correct, they open up entirely new fields. So it's good to straddle those spheres. Well, it's hard to get both kinds funded, right? The first kind is yeah. mundane, the second kind is too, too risky yeah. <laughs> right? or, or harebrained. It's hard to get funding to finish projects all the way. It, it can be. Uh, I mean, NIH, you know, I think if you have a good, very specific project that's important, I think obviously it's harder to get funding through NIH than ever before just because of the amount of funding they have. But philosophically, I think they're still trying to fund that kind of work. Let's go back to um, pediatric cancers a bit. Yeah. I know you've... Uh, the role of microRNAs or lung coding RNAs is starting to emerge. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about what's known and what yeah. you think is happening in, in, in the role in pediatric cancers and maybe as it might be distinguishable from adult cancers? Right. So um, I know I just asked you for a two-hour lecture. No, <laughs> I'm actually very excited about the role of microRNAs in pediatric cancer because um, and this wasn't something we anticipated through our research or expected to happen, but um, through, so I have, an, I have the privilege of interacting and um, collaborating with some really outstanding pediatric oncologists at UT Southwestern, Jim Amatruda in particular, and Dinesh Rakeja, who's a pathologist, who are interested in various types of pediatric cancers, including Wilms tumor, which is a kidney cancer, as you know, and they, um, they were performing 
characterizing the genomics of Wilms tumor and discovered that the microRNA pathway is really important, or I should say the loss of the microRNA pathway is really important in the pathogenesis of multiple types of pediatric cancers, uh, including Wilms tumor and rhabdomyosarcoma. So that got me really excited um, because what we have found by looking at other types of cancers, adult cancers in particular, is that it's often the case that individual microRNAs may be um, hyperactive or lost, and that can certainly facilitate tumor genesis. But what seemed to be different about these pediatric cancers is that the whole pathway was perturbed. And so it really pinpointed a central role for microRNAs in general in these cancers. And so we've been really interested and have invested a lot of effort in trying to delve deeper into the mechanisms through which the microRNAs are involved in pediatric cancers and uh, with the ultimate goal, of course, of trying to understand the mechanism so we can develop new therapies. But I think what's fundamentally different about pediatric cancer with, with re versus adult cancer with regard to the microRNA pathway is that I think that in these cases where the microRNA pathway is lost, the, the tumors really come from a developmental abnormality. And it's probably that event that the microRNAs are regulating. They're, many of them are important regulators of development. And so in the absence of the pathway, the, some developmental event is perturbed that creates you know, a susceptible state, a, a particular cell type that uh, you know, persists or expands, um, then gives rise to that tumor type. And I think that's probably why the microRNA pathway, as in general, uh, is showing up as an important regulator of those tumor types versus later on these specific oncogenic or tumor suppressor microRNAs in adult cancers. Well, in fact, we uh, in our uh, podcast have talked about DICER-1 mutations, uh -huh. uh, episode 15 for anybody who wants to go back and listen to that. But uh, because that what you're talking about, these developmental pathways are obviously important, uh, but also sometimes the, the mutations are inherited. Mm -hmm. So there's cancer yeah. family syndromes. Did you mention a few of those? Uh, just to remind our listeners, they can listen back, but I think yeah, there's so a lot Dicer, more since then, too. Dicer is a fascinating example. Um, there's actually, I'm not sure what you mentioned in your podcast, so, but just possibly to repeat it a little bit, there is now this recognized um, syndrome called that is frequently referred to as the Dicer-1 syndrome, which is um, caused by mutations in Dicer that are inherited. And on one of the two copies of the gene, if you inherit a dicer mutation, it creates a susceptibility to, to certain t pediatric tumor types. So obviously it's important to know whether or not a patient has that because it's important because it, it can help determine what other tumors they're susceptible to and help with screening. And, and certainly what we certainly also want to know is how, the, how those tumors respond to therapies and whether it's different than ones that don't have those mutations. So it's really important to understand that. And then because these tumors that arise in that syndrome are very clearly initiated by effects on the microRNA pathway, that could create new opportunities for therapy. So if we really understand why the microRNA pathway is so critical for preventing those types of tumors, then we'd like to think that we could potentially reverse that process, but that's more down the road. You know, I think even more broadly speaking, pediatric tumors in general don't have all these mutations and things driving cancers that the adult cancers have. And, and we really understand very little. And we, we talk a lot about epigenetics as being a regulatory mechanism 
for that that may give rise to these cancers, but I think that mechanisms that regulate genes in those cells are, are often probably underappreciated in the pediatric cancers, and there's probably a lot of opportunity in, in understanding those better. Yeah, I mean, I think that makes a lot of sense, what you're saying, because by <laughs> impairing the microRNA pathway, you can, a, a small number or even a single mutation or a single gene mutated can affect hundreds of other genes. So yeah. um, it could help explain how you can have these tumors arise in the setting of a relatively unmutated yeah. genomic background. So help us understand, or our listeners also understand, if you know, we, could, we can conceptualize a, a muta one mutated gene that's sort of a doncogene driver and a, and a drug that targets it, like you know, Gleevec and BCR-ABLE, mm -hmm. Philadelphia chromosome uh, CLL. How can we treat a microRNA pathway because that affects hundreds of genes and that all yeah. cells use, right? One so one of the things that we don't know that um, is, is really whether, although the whole microRNA pathway is perturbed, whether there are just a few key microRNAs that play a role in a specific window of time in development or um, in early childhood that are the drivers and so if that's the case, then we could potentially revert, we could deliver just those few microRNAs. And there are currently therapeutic trials going on to deliver microRNAs in adult cancer. So that is technologically uh, conceivable, although there are still technological challenges to deliver microRNAs to various sites. So we really need to know, sort of, even though the whole microRNA pathway is perturbed, which are the key microRNAs that are the actual drivers in the tumor. And do you think the same thing is going to be true for long uh, non-coding RNAs? Are we going to be able to use, modulate those therapeutically? They're going to be much more, yeah. much harder to get into cells, right, because of their size. Well, actually, um, delivering long non-coding RNAs is probably going to be very challenging, but inhibiting them may be more feasible. There's actually methods using oligonucleotides that are have pretty good biodistribution that can inhibit long non-coding RNAs. And to my knowledge, I mean, Nile knows more about this than I do, as to whether there are good examples. I mean, I think he's got one in um, some pediatric tumors. But it's in, certainly in adult tumors, there have been some really nice examples of long non-coding RNAs that have been identified that seem to represent therapeutic targets. I mentioned this one before, and I think it is probably maybe the best well-known one so far is this one called Mallet-1, which uh, is this very good evidence using whole animal models that inhibiting it could prevent metastasis of different tumor types. And I, I'm, I'm aware of some work in melanoma showing something similar, and I think that there are probably some others. Yeah, Where are we, Neelie, with no. our understanding in pediatrics? Oh, we're we're in its infancy, certainly. Um, and I would say even in adult cancers, the even though we're we, it's been more of a thorough job of identifying these targets. The understanding, like Josh said, is is still very simplistic. But that said, what's what's been attractive about a lot of these long non coatings is that a lot of them are skewed towards an undifferentiated state, like what we see in our pediatric cancers. So that makes it a more attractive target in a lot of ways as well, in that. When you target them, you can probably uh, avoid toxicity to a lot of the normal tissues. The big question that I have for pediatrics is going to be, it's great in an adult where 
the overwhelming majority of their tissues are going to be in their complete differentiated mm-hmm. state. We're going to have to see what happens when you try to address some of these genes in a body that's still developing and what happens to them 10 years after the treatment, 20 years after the treatment. So I think that it's, it's, it's an exciting time to be a scientist and it's a scary time to be a physician. <laughs> right. It, it strikes me that you know the, the genomics world, looking at gene mutations, um, is, is certainly much more mature. And you know there are lots of places that, and you know we're all now sequencing everybody's tumor and and you can and go to, looking, to the internet and send twenty three and me and yeah. sequence yourself now. <laughs> but, but then you know people are matching you know therapeutic available therapeutics to different mutations. So do yeah. you envision a world where that'll be the case? Where right now we're just that's just a glimpse. You know, once we'll, we'll sequence everyone's or, or uh, assess, analyze the expression levels of all their long non-coding RNAs and all their microRNAs and then plug it into a, an algorithm and get a recipe. A recipe, yeah. Is that, <laughs> is that what's in our future? And, and if so, then we're, you know, we're missing all that at the moment because I think that's, we're not there by any stretch. I mean, I think there's no question that there's very useful diagnostic and prognostic information provided certainly by microRNAs and probably by non-coding, long non-coding RNAs. So I do envision a future where that kind of information is part of the complete picture. The challenge is just going to be, even though the technology keeps moving ahead uh, at leaps and bounds, um, it's now the question is that reliability. We don't want families to get poor information or unreliable information. So that's going to be the big challenge. Well, I guess we'll hopefully not have to wait. This is episode 60, so not have to wait till episode 600 or something. Like that. <laughs> <laughs> to really hear more about how, how we've advanced this field. Any any final questions, you guys? Well, one last thought, Josh. So you're, you're the son of a physician scientist. You've been surrounded by scientists. You had excellent mentorship, and you give excellent mentorship. You've got a great track record of, of, um, of mentees yourself. Science has changed so much in, in the span of our careers. What would you be telling people who are coming into science now? What should they be focusing on? What, what should their expectations, how, they, how should that be modulated? Anything, the first thing you would think of that uh, a student should know that they may not consider. I mean, for me, what I always tell my students that are looking at a lab or looking at my lab or even later on looking at postdocs, What's always driven me in science is finding a problem that I'm, I feel real passion for. Um, and I, because I think if you feel that, then it's, even though there are ups and downs, there's a lot of failure. We already talked about that. Um, and that's, failure is the norm when you're in the lab and when you're running a lab. So you've got to believe that the problem is fundamentally interesting and that you are making progress every day, even through failure. And you enjoy the process of doing it. And I think that, you know, there are, there are some people that just really like to be in the lab and just tackle that problem and beat their head against the wall until they break through and they eventually will. And you've got, I try to find, make sure my students, like, just try to find that environment where they're working on that problem that, that they feel that for. And then I think the process itself will be, you know, really, really rewarding. And then much less when you're finally successful and break through and figure something out, it'll be, you know, an incredible experience that will really propel them forward. And I think a lot of people like me, you know, the first time I really tasted real scientific success and discovered something, it was 
an addiction. You know, you know, such a great, so satisfying to spend all that time and effort, you know, and, and creativity and, you know, just to try to tackle a problem and, you know, coming at it from so many different directions. So you finally figured out something that's fundamental, um, that, that's not only something that's never been seen before and informs how we understand the natural world, but also impacts medicine and patients. I mean, it's, it's very, very exciting. I think if you can get a student in a position to experience that, they'll be hooked. That's a great high note to end on. Positive message about science since we've had so many discussions here about how hard it is to get funding, you know, <laughs> how, to, how to stay alive as a scientist. So uh, I think what you just articulated was very, very nice and well put. And, uh, one one reason that we all keep going and trying to make the world a better place. So appreciate that. It's, we're very fortunate to have had you here. Thank you for visiting with us and sharing Thank some you. of your thoughts. Thank you, Ryan, for being here, co-host Neelay. Thanks to the team at Solving Kids Cancer, a nonprofit charity dedicated to improving survival through creating novel treatment options for children. That team includes Donna Ludwinski, our executive producer, and Cindy Campbell, director of communications. And also thanks to Scott Kennedy and John London, the founding co-directors of Solving Kids Cancer. Remember, the more we learn, communicate, share ideas, and work together, the faster we'll reach the day when all childhood cancer is preventable or curable. As always, keep up the fight, and thanks for listening this week in Pediatric Oncology.